You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We want to start this episode off by paying our enormous gratitude to you. Lewis and I, we reminisced over this year, and we are left with just such a surreal feeling around this show and all of the things which have happened this year. Since January, our downloads have increased by 1900%. We've brought legendary figures like Robert Greene, Dean Graziosi, Professor David Sinclair, and many, many, many others to the show. And believe me when I say, this sincerely wouldn't be possible without you. Thousands of you tune in every month and as this year comes to an end we are promising you that on your own journey to freedom we are going to bring you the best guests, the best content, the best resources to help you along your journey. So guys from us here We hope that this holiday season brings you blessings and that you rejoin us at the start of the year because we are going to take things to a whole nother level. Today on the show, we are joined by the legendary entrepreneur and the man that Marshall Goldsmith described as the finest entrepreneurial coach in the world. It is Alan Weiss. I suppose, where to begin with Alan? I first encountered Alan many, many, many years ago when I read his book Million Dollar Consulting, which is now in his 25th year of being a bestseller, as well as publishing more than 60 books and 500 articles for various press prince. Alan has been inducted into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame. He's a recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Press Institute, which was the first ever for a non-journalist. Alan's consulting company, Summit Inc., can boast corporate clients like the Federal Reserve, GE, Hewlett-Packard, Toyota, Mercedes-Benz, and the New York Times Corporation. Alan's speaking career has taken him to more than 60 countries. He typically does about 30 keynote speeches per year at major conferences. And on top of this, Alan holds a PhD in psychology and has served on the board of governors at Harvard University. It is safe to say that Alan certainly has mastered the science of success. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation 
with the legendary Alan Weiss. Alan, so great to connect. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Alan, so you're such a legend in this in this game. I read Million Dollar Consulting many, many years back. For the people listening now that may not be familiar with you, could we delve into your backstory a little bit and what's brought you here? Well, let's see. Uh, I entered the training business in the 70s uh, when I left Prudential Insurance as a young kid. And um, I worked for a firm in Princeton, New Jersey for 11 years. I went up to be... Um, president of a consulting firm in Providence, Rhode Island, which is why I'm in Rhode Island today. Uh, but after 14, 15 months, I was fired. The, the owner and I hated each other. And, uh, you know, I made two decisions then to save my life. I decided that one, this was a relationship business. And the idea was to sell yourself and create relationships. And the second was that I would never charge by the hour or day or time unit or by numbers of people in a room or anything like that. I would only charge for value. And those two decisions did save my life. So you know, the first uh, year I made 67000 on my own. The next year I made 125 or something. Next year, 250 maybe. Uh, and that's uh, 1980, um, 1985. And uh, 1991, I wrote Million Dollar Consulting. And Million Dollar Consulting, I mean, that book has been at the top for, for a long time. I mean, I heard you make the comparison, you know, in terms of Peter Drucker, and it's hard to, to dispute there. Yeah. I'd love... Uh, pleased to be in that stratosphere, yeah. You certainly are. So I'd love to just pull you back. Let's just go back because there's a lot in there where you just give a little speaker bio about, but there's a lot of gold in there. So when you were sacked, let's talk about that because these are always usually pits which I love to delve into people's stories. So what happened there? Well, the company was owned by a guy named W. Clement Stone, who was a big financier here in the U.S., he bailed out Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill had gone bankrupt, you know, think and grow rich, because Napoleon Hill was a fraud. He was a con man. Uh, so he went broke. Stone buys him out. He makes his, his fortune in insurance. And, you know, he owns about 40 companies at this point. And he believed in positive mental attitude. Now, Stone had $450 million to his name when I knew him. And uh, he thought that positive mental attitude got him that. And I said to him, he has the etiology mixed up. Etiology is the science of cause and effect. And I said, the reason you have a positive mental attitude is because you have $450 million, not the other way around. And if you want to give everyone a positive mental attitude, you got to give them all $450 million. Well, he didn't like that. So he fired me in the Admiral's Club at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And I called my wife. My wife said, what happened? I said, I got fired. She said, well, we expected that, my wife says. What do you want to do? I said, I'm going out on my own. No moron will ever fire me again. And she said, okay, screw the mortgage, she said. Forget the mortgage, but you better get serious. And I did. Wow. Am I right in saying that W. Clement Stone, I think that Jack Canfield writes about him in The Success Principles? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all those guys go back forever. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just astounded. Stone made his money not through positive mental attitude. He, in the 20s and 30s, he sold what was called industrial insurance for two or three pennies a week. And industrial insurance enabled people in factories, very poor people, to get a decent burial and not be buried in a pauper's field, a mass grave. And every week he would walk through these factories, five, six stories, collect two or three cents from each person, made a fortune. And he, fought, he founded Consolidated Insurance, got some smart financial guys, and, you know, good for him, but had nothing to do with a positive mental attitude. Yeah. Did you have any contact with him in, in latter years? No. Uh, after he fired me, that was it. 
I never saw him again. He was about 82 or 84 then. Um, had slicked, slicked down black dyed hair and a pencil mustache. He was a character. I'll tell you, he had this big um, caddy limousine from about the 50s. And uh, he used to have me drive it, and he'd sit next to me. But sometimes he'd drive it, and I'd sit in the back. And there, he was hitting things all the time. And in the glove compartment was a set of uh, stickers. And the stickers were pre-printed, and it would say, your, and I would check off, uh, mailbox, car, property, or pet has been hit by W. Clement Stone at this address. Please contact him for remuneration, for repayment. And I would stick this on whatever he hit. I get back in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how long did you work with, with Clement Stone for W. Clement Stone? Year and a half. Were there any particular lessons which you learned from him that carried on throughout your career? Well, yeah. I mean, the company was all about behavioral predispositions. And I learned psychometric testing and I learned, you know, uh, what that meant, which made me very cynical about behavioral testing and profiling from companies that don't have validated testing. So you look at Myers-Briggs, you look at DISC, you look at all these horoscopes, because that's what they are. They're not validated instruments, yet companies are using these instead of trying to understand behavior to explain away behavior. You know, what do you think, what can you expect from an INTJ? What can you expect from a high D? It's all crap. So it taught me that. And uh, I went out on my own, so I had some knowledge of that. And then years after I went out on my own, I went and got a, a PhD in psychology on my own uh, just because I wanted to get more grounding. But, you know, in the long run, it really didn't matter. Mm. After that incident, was that a case of do or die for you at that point? Were you really fired up at that point? How were you feeling after the sacking? I find that when people are fired, one of two things happen. They either get distraught or they get really angry. And I got really angry. Uh, and so I was not down on myself. I was furious. And I, I did say no more. I will ever fire me. I'll never work for anyone again. Uh, and I went at it. I called everyone I knew. Uh, you know, because I had some background, I had some contact, I called everyone I knew, said, here's what I'm doing. Uh, and I was diligent, because like my wife said, screw the mortgage, but you better get serious. Uh, and that's what I did. Now, we had very little money in the bank. Uh, you know, my kids were in private school, and we had debts, and we didn't have a lot of money. So I went at it. I know that there's a story which I would love to delve into. Uh, wasn't there a case where you just got sacked from this one job? You need to raise some money, and you calculate that if you can raise $65,000 by the end of the year, that that would be enough to pay for the bills and whatnot. And then you turn to your wife and you're like, okay, it's like I need to like rent this limousine to go and meet these partners. Can we delve into that story? I loved you. Ah, actually, the number was 68000 You were okay. quite right, 68000 huh? And uh, when I got fired, I started, I, I bought a $2,000 suit, and this is, you know, 1980s money, and I flew first class and I used limos. My wife said, you know, we have no money, and I said, if I'm showing up in buyer's offices, I'm not going to show up perspired and wrinkled and, and ragged. And besides, it'll be paid for with just one sale. So I had a proposal in front of Merck Pharmaceuticals. I got on the airplane, flew down, and there were three options. And the third option was 68000 If I got option three, we were good for the year. So I walk into the buyer's office. He's sitting there. I still remember his name, Del McPherson. And uh, Del's got my proposal. And he puts it down. He says, Alan, look. He shoves it back at me. He says, we want option three. When can you start? So I said, well, you know, I can start next week. I was going to say I could start right now. I can start next week. Uh, do you mind if I call my office and get messages? He said, no, go ahead. So it's all cubicles. There's no office. It's all cubicles. So I go into an empty cubicle, and, you know, they can see you. So I called my home number, and, I, and my, my wife says, you know, hello. And I said, I'm checking messages. And she said, how did you do? How did you do? 
And I said, oh, very well, thank you. And she said, how much, how much? I said, oh, um, the year we graduated. And she said, grammar school, high school, college? And I said, college. And she said, $68,000. I said, well, thank you for the message. You know, I hung up. <laughs> oh, wow, I love that story. Um, <laughs> what was it like when you got home? Was it like champagne waiting for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had, we had, I probably had some wine, you know, with dinner. And we would, we would said, okay, if I can do this once, we, I can do it again. And, uh, and also show me the value of having options because people love to escalate the value, you know. Cool. So, um, yeah, but you know, people say to me, "You live in a different world." You know, I understand where everybody is. I've been there myself, and I have a global community. So, you know, I'm working with consultants who are making millions of dollars. I'm also working with consultants just starting their practice. So I know exactly what it's like. I'm very much in touch, and I've been there and done that. So when you're in that sort of position where you make the gamble to go and get the limousine how were you personally dealing with that in terms of the stress because i imagine that is a stressful position i mean you're in a position you've literally got bills to pay you've made the decision i'm going to follow this entrepreneurial route there's no guaranteed paycheck there it's it's entirely on you how do you deal with it first of all you need a strong support system and my wife was very supportive and I tell people today, in fact, in, in this last, the fourth edition of Getting Started in Consulting, I tell people, you need a support system, whether it's your spouse, your partner, your family, colleagues, you need a support system. So that was one thing. The second thing was that I figured I could always get a job again. And that, you know, this wasn't, I didn't have a terminal illness. You know, you have to have things in perspective. I needed to bring in money. I was working on my own. I was free. Come on. And uh, you have to always keep things in perspective like that. You know, what you do or don't do is not going to change the history of civilization. Uh, I've also worked through with several people in my communities uh, who have gone just about bankrupt. And nobody comes and throws you in debtor's prison. Nobody takes your house away. You know, you have some wiggle room. So if, you, if you're fearful, fear is like guilt. It masks your talent and you can't operate as effectively. So you have to do away with the fear because otherwise you'll never be successful. Was there a case simply that after that whole sack and it was just a case of, nope, I am not working for anyone else unless literally like I, I have to? Was that the case for you? Right. It was a last resort. I mean, I had a kids and a wife and, you know, we had to, I had to feed them. Uh, and that was the last resort. But I figured, you know, I could certainly last six or eight months before it came to that. You said that, that after the sack and you said that people tend to go one of two ways. You know, it's either they get really angry or they just go down. They just hit hit a sort of low. What was it about you specifically, about your character, that really got you fired up? And obviously, I mean, you know, we all know the great things which followed afterwards. Self-esteem. When I was fired, it wasn't a commentary on my self-worth. And if your self-worth is, is high, but it is also constant. In other words, you're not as high as your last victory and you're not as low as your last defeat. You're constant. Uh, you can withstand anything. So being fired didn't threaten my self-esteem. It didn't tell me I wasn't good at what I do. I, I do. You know, I thought W. Clement Stone was an idiot. And uh, so I moved on. You know, just because you have money doesn't mean you're intelligent. So uh, it's it's really what you think about yourself that matters, not what other people think of you. I think that this is such a, a real pivotal point as well, because in our, the business in which we're in, you know, the people which we speak to, we see a lot of people have a lot of trouble self-promoting themselves. 
and I'd imagine that that's not necessarily a tactical issue or a problem with their video cameras or their website. I imagine, as you say, that's probably a self-esteem issue. It is. Consultants have a lot of problem with that. I mean, most uh, professional service providers do. I used to think it was a, a question of not charging high enough fees. Then I realized that it had to be a cause for not charging enough, and the cause was low self-esteem. And so I dealt for many years with esteem, and I wrote books on that subject. Uh, but now what I've decided is that one of the problems with esteem is that people are just afraid. So I, I want people to be less afraid. And uh, the, one of the troubles is, you know, um, Joe, people don't trust their own judgment. And they're constantly, using, constantly trying to use other people's metrics. What do you think? What do you think? Can I do this? You've got to trust your own judgment. Uh, it's nice to ask for advice, but at the end of the day, you're responsible for your own actions. Mm. Do you think that, that you can really build that self-esteem up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, self-esteem comes from, you know, I call them hyper-traits. But, for example, a use of language, uh, an unwillingness, unwillingness to tolerate unsolicited feedback. You know, don't listen to people who you don't ask because they're in it for themselves, not for you. Uh, it's the ability to um, uh, not see failure as fatal but is another learning step. And there are six or seven traits like that that make you resilient. And once you're resilient, you know, you can you can get through anything. The first one, what you said but there is about the unsolicited feedback, do you mean in the sense that someone could be giving you advice maybe just to feel validated themselves? Most people who give you advice that you didn't ask for are validating themselves or they're playing um, one-up, uh, they're playing gotcha, uh, they're trying to elevate themselves by, by uh, causing you to be lower. And uh, uh, solicited feedback is much different because you ask people you trust and, you, and uh, whose judgment you trust for advice. But if you listen to unsolicited feedback, you'll just be a ping pong ball. I heard somebody say, you know, everybody's a guru. And, and some woman says, listen, the only thing to, deal with, to do with feedback is to listen to it. Crap. You know, you don't listen to feedback you didn't ask for. You know, you're going to spend your day miserable. Yeah. You know, I've had, I've had speech coaches. I'm making air quotes, right? I've had speech coaches come up to me after I've done a keynote where people are on their feet applauding, telling me they'd like to help me improve my speaking. You know, get out of my way. <laughs> it's not that my speaking can't be improved, that I'm perfect, but I don't need to improve it. And I don't certainly need to improve it from somebody to ask. How can we get the balance between wanting to improve and taking good feedback and then not getting drawn into other people's mindless opinions like how can we differentiate between good advice and then that advice you know as you said to validate them only listen to advice you ask for it's very simple don't listen to any advice you didn't ask for it's that simple because the advice you didn't ask for 95 percent of the time is for the sender and so that's that's the line you have to draw because today everybody's an expert, you know, everybody wants to give you advice. But if you walk through the park, you see statues to heroes. You don't see statues to critics. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, do you have any other tactics to raise self-esteem? And I can share one which, which I've particularly used over the years. So I remember reading in uh, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Have you read that book? No, um, but I know. Yeah, and uh, in the book, he, Maxwell Maltz said, and this stuck with me, and I read this about five years ago, and he basically said that your self-esteem or your self-image and your habits, they're tied together. So if you change one, so you change your habits, then you would change the other. 
So I remember applying that and then just doing different things like, as you said, uh, you know, it could be something simple like exercising more or eating better foods, these things. And they, I definitely found that they that they worked in terms of raising my own self-image and my esteem. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I think that's pretty true. I mean, we, see, we tend to default to the negative. And so you don't get a sale at a given point in time. And instead of saying, on this day, at this time, this particular person didn't buy from me, you say, God, I'm a, I'm a lousy marketer, you know? And we don't do the reverse. When we get the sale, we don't say, I'm a great marketer. We say, well, I got lucky today with this person, see? And so all that eats away at our self-esteem. So the way to look at self-esteem is that uh, you're not as good as your last victory, you're not as bad as your last defeat, you're who you are, and you've got to abandon perfectionism. Perfectionism kills excellence. And, you know, I've written 60-some odd books because I just sit down, write the book, and send it in to the publisher. I don't go back and say, well, I said there were seven critical points. Maybe I should have said nine. I never do that, you know? I'm the expert. I'll tell you how many points. And... Uh, the problem is people, people rewrite the same sentence 15 times and I'm making it any better. I love that. I feel as if in the work in which you do particular in consulting, that that negative aspect, if someone wants to get started in consulting, a major part of it really could be, you know, you've got the numbers game, you've got to make more calls, you've got to reach out to more people. Obviously, I mean, we've just covered it a bit in your own personal life. You've gone through some failure. How do you rewire that failure so you're not focusing on the negative, as you just said, but there? Well, every failure has a learning lesson. As, you know, if you're not failing, you're not trying. Everybody fails. You know, Edison failed. Washington failed. Everybody fails. So if you're not failing, you're not trying. If people say, I, you know, I've never failed, they mean either they've never tried anything risky or they failed and don't know it or they're lying. You know, it's that simple. So... You simply take it in stride. It's going to happen. I think what people need to pay more attention to is the kind of failure work they do. Failure work is work that you do because the first time it didn't work well. The first time it wasn't successful. So, you know, here's a simplistic example. You know, you've got to hang something up and it falls on the floor where you have to pick it up and rehang it. That's failure work. But, you know, it happens to all of us. But some of us, failure work is much bigger. And some of us are doing failure work for our clients or doing failure work for our families. And that just eats up all your time. And wealth is discretionary time. Wealth is not money. I think a lot of people could look at you, Alan, and you know, see these amazing books and the keynote speeches and you know all this other amazing things which you've done. They could think, "Wow, you know, I mean, Marie, I mean, how much failure has this guy gone through? They don't see the process. So, how much failure in your life have you had to recover from and do that failure work for?" I have, well, I don't do a lot of failure work. I'm pretty good the first time. And I try to avoid failure, but I've had a lot of failures. I mean, my goodness. You know, I've, I've launched courses that nobody wanted to go to. I've, sub, I've submitted book proposals that no publisher wanted to uh, uh, publish. Uh, you know, I've had a, a couple of uh, speeches I wish had gone differently. We all have failures. I don't care. I mean, it's part of the human condition, you know. And I remember telling one woman who went up on her lines in a speech, uh, I said, you did just fine. And she broke down and cried. You know, another woman I made cry. And I said, what's wrong with you? She said, fine isn't good enough. I have to be great. Well, if you're going to go through life that way, you're going to have a very difficult life. Yeah. So in those instances, I mean, what are you telling yourself to just get back up and keep going? It's like a boxer that just keeps getting into the ring type thing. Yeah, I mean, it was minor. Hmm. You know, it was minor. I mean, like I said, we're not changing Western civilization here. 
So I didn't get this piece of business. So the publisher doesn't like the book. So I'll try another piece of business and another publisher. I don't care. I, I don't take it personally. You know, it's like the mafia. It's just business. I don't take it personally. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's a great place in the conversation now. I'd love to touch on your latest book. This is one I'm very much looking forward to. When's it out now? Is it out at the start of January? Yeah, it, I think it's technically released uh, December 29th, but, you know, early January. Yeah. It's, the Kindle version is available now. The hard copy comes out then. How much different is this to your to your other previous work? It's very different. Uh, I mean, it has it has a certain relationship to, for example, Million Dollar Maverick, or Life Storming, the book I wrote with Marshall Goldsmith. But it's very different work. It, 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 it's not talking about professional services or consultants or anything. It's talking about both um, people in uh, people who are entrepreneurs and people in leadership positions. Uh, how do you get over the fears that sometimes you don't even realize are haunting you? So, like, what, what are some of the fears which could be could be haunting you? Uh, we walk around uh, subtly afraid of rejection. And even even some people in leadership positions are afraid that their subordinates won't like what they're talking about. Uh, and we have these fears that uh, will be critiqued. And we have these fears, you know, that somebody will find a typo. You know, I love it when somebody says to me, you know, Alan, there are seven typos in your book. And I say, no, go back. There are 12. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I suppose that would come back to the to the self esteem factor as well, right? You know, p- people walk around fearing fear, and uh, mm-hmm. look, uh, kids are afraid there's a monster under the bed, and so you get a flashlight and you show there's nothing under the bed, right? Next day they're afraid again. So pretty soon you get older, and you're no longer afraid of monsters under the bed. But that doesn't mean there was never a monster under your bed. You could, you could, you just didn't look the night it was there. You know, might have been. You know, there's this great phrase by Woody Allen. He says, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean no one is following you. So, you know, you get on with your life. And um, failure is simply part of life. It happens. Mm. Let me ask you, uh, and I wasn't going to take the conversation in this com- in this way, but just speaking to you now it makes me think. Have you, throughout your career, had to deal with negative self-talk, those voices in your head uh, could be, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, um, someone didn't love me, or I got sacked, or anything like this. Have you ever had to deal with those voices? Never. 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 I, I've never read a feedback sheet in my life, ever. And when I'm speaking, if I find somebody doing their email, or they're not paying attention, or they're not laughing at my jokes, I don't care. They're adults. It's all right. I don't care. Just don't disturb the rest of us. No, I uh, mean in your own head. Well, no, I'm saying all those right. things don't bother me. All right. So I've never thought that I'm not good enough. I've always felt that I can, I'm smart enough to get something done. I'm smart enough to learn new things. So I have to learn new things and I'm smart enough to bounce back if something goes wrong. So I never burden myself with, with trying to worry that I'm not good enough. I mean, there's enough people around trying to tell you that. So no, that, that has never bothered me. In fact, when I just go back to your earlier questions, when I was fired and was fighting to get business early on, uh, prospects would ask me if I could do X, Y, or Z. And my response was always the same. Of course. And I would go out and learn how to do it, or I'd go out and make it up. I had never done it before, but I figured it out. Of course. I forget who the quote is, but uh, it could be Elon Musk when he said, uh, it's like, someone will ask me to do something, and I'll say yes, and then I'll figure out how to do it later on. <laughs> except he doesn't. Elon Musk drives me crazy. Except okay. he doesn't. Do <laughs> Have you got a gripe with Elon Musk? I don't, I don't think much of him at all. I think... You know, he wants to send a rocket to Mars, and he can't send a Tesla to California. 
You know, <laughs> he's got problems. He, he called this guy who who showed that his midget submarine was just a publicity stunt to save those kids in Thailand caves. He called the guy a pedophile. Uh, he's emotionally unbalanced. He just he just launched his cyber pickup truck. His you know this this um this advanced pickup truck, all electric, whatever the hell it is, with sh- with break proof glass. And when they threw iron balls at the glass, it broke. Oh, <laughs> muttered, you know, a, a horrible obscenity. The, the guy's playing with other people's money, and uh, you know, unlike Richard Branson, who I admire. Oh, so I, it was him. It was him. The quote was uh, was attributed to Richard Branson. Yeah. I, I think a lot of Richard Branson. I don't think anything of Elon Musk. Mm. Tesla will be sold in the next couple of years. Oh, very interesting. Alan Weiss prediction on the show. <laughs> you heard it here. Here, here. So is that what you'd encourage entrepreneurs to do? Someone says, could you do this? Could you do this? Is to say, yeah, and then figure out as you go that type of mentality. Yes, providing you have a passion for it. If you have a passion, yes. For example, people would ask me to do things in IT or, or um, finance, and I always turn those down because I have absolutely no interest in IT and no interest in finance. So there's no passion there. But if you're talking about organizational improvement, you're talking about improving people's performance, you're talking about you know organizational structure, strategy, I love all that stuff. Mm. Let me ask you, Alan, so throughout your career, you've obviously done all these amazing, amazing different things. You've been at the top for, for, for a while. What is it that brings you the most fulfillment in the work in which you do? Well, I have to answer that with two responses. The first is the tremendous... Um, discretionary time it gives me to pursue my interests, to be with my family. I have about a dozen hobbies I'm very interested in. Uh, and to be able to pursue my life, I'm very grateful for my profession and what I love. In terms of the profession itself, I'm passionate about helping people on my own terms. And so, you know, I, I do very little corporate work anymore, but I do some, but it's on my terms. Uh, I'm coaching right now one of the most well-known executives in America, um, who came to me and said, you know, can we do this for a while? Uh, but the individuals in my communities around the world, uh, you know, it's very easy to see improvement and it's very easy to see them advance. And uh, I like this kind of interaction where it's not theoretical. We're talking about seeing the next client, writing the next proposal, delivering the next project. Mm. And something else I'm also thinking, I mean, it's like 60 books you've written by this point, isn't it? It's like 60 books? Yeah, 63 or 4, and they're in 15 languages. Yeah, so it's clear to me that you must have these outstanding work habits. What What are some of the habits or s- strategies which really allow you to perform at this high of a level for, I mean, for so long? Well, I'm tempted to say I go for volume and not accuracy, which makes it easy with the books, you know. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very organized. I'm highly disciplined, and I'm self-accountable. I don't need someone else to make me accountable. So... Um, for example, before uh, before we started today, I've got, you know, six columns I put in every month, videos, audios, and everything. So I have to organize. And I realized, you know, I had some time. So I wrote uh, one of my major columns for January 1st. And, you know, I have a note to do it one of these days. So uh, I'm very organized. Uh, I'm self-disciplined. And uh, because my reward is discretionary time. I'm never doing things under the deadline. I'm never doing things in a rush. And so I love being able to do what I want when I want to do it. Will you ever retire? No, retirement is an artifact. It doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, I'll tell you why. I wrote about this in a book called Three Score and More. Retirement in the United States was implemented at age 65 in the 1940s when there were uh, 14 people working for every retired person. 
and the average lifespan was 68. So you retire at 65, you live for three years. Today, the average lifespan is 80. And so if you retire at 65, you live for at least 15 more years, and there are only two and a half people working for every retired person. So first of all, financially, we can't afford that system. Secondly, it's the equivalent of saying, okay, we're not going to put women in the workforce. You're losing all this talent. So all of these people, just because they're above an arbitrary age, can continue to contribute. And if you want to stay alive longer, you have to keep your mind occupied. You know, I work out three times a week to keep my body in shape, but I also have to keep my mind working. Right now in Japan, for example, they're bringing back people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s in the financial services area to deal with customers who are now in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who want to deal with contemporaries, you know? And, you know, we have this, we have tens of trillions of dollars in the U.S. being transferred because of the Reagan's IRA legislation. It's, it's the biggest generational transfer in history. And, you know, somebody my age doesn't want to talk to a 35-year-old financial advisor. And so we need older people who have wisdom in the workforce. And, and to think that people should stop working at a certain point. You know, they might want to change their work. That's fine. But to stop working, I mean, you just sit around to wait to die. Yeah. It's clear that you've still got that that hunger even though obviously I mean as you just said you've got that that freedom aspect of it essentially you don't you clearly don't have to do this I mean what's next for for Alan Weiss after this I don't know you know I'm on top of my game and uh, when I'm not on top of any of my games I'll leave it but I'm on top of my game I'm the best there is at what I do so I'm going to continue to write I'll continue to coach Uh, I think I'll put on some high-end events like I do now my consulting convention next year is in uh, Sydney I usually do things in Sydney and London in addition to the U.S. I'm putting on some new high-end events. I just finished the consulting college here in Newport. I'm thinking of doing a special castle event in the U.K., uh, maybe, you know, get Downton Abbey or something, right. and, and do, you know, two or three days with special chefs and the whole business. But we'll talk about life and business, you know, maybe a maximum of 12 people. You know, we'll see what happens. Not far from me, I would I'd make sure I'd get myself to uh, to that one. I wonder, just following on from you know what we've talked about today. I mean, do you think that you could maybe get to a hundred books? Well, let's see. That would be another, let's say, thirty-five, two a year. I don't know, don't know. But I'm almost at uh, four million air miles. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I've just got a couple more questions left, Alan, before we wrap up this. It's been a you know a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. I love connecting. So I've just got four questions which I ask all of our guests. They're non-specific, so they shouldn't take too long. Okay. Uh, the first question I've got for you is, you are this obviously amazing author. You've released all these books. I don't think I've ever spoken to a, a guest with that, that sort of volume. What are some of the books that you have read that have impacted your life? Well, I get a lot more from fiction than nonfiction. Mm. So um, I read The Grapes of Wrath uh, by John Steinbeck, uh, The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald, A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens. Uh, These are great moralistic tales, and you learn a great deal from them. Uh, On the business side, I don't read a lot of business books, but, you know, Drucker's books are great. uh, managing Turbulent Times, The Effective Executive, those kinds of books. John Gardner on Leadership uh, was a book I admired a great deal. So those kinds of things have been um, have been very valuable. But I read eclectically. I read about the arts and science and biographies and everything. 
We always ask our guests, based on your life, based on what you see in the world, could be what we've talked about today, could be the topic of your upcoming book, we always ask, as we are a show that rooted in action taking, we love taking action as quickly as we can, if you had a challenge for us and our audience for things that we could do today, do you have a challenge for us? Yeah, my challenge would be, Think of the greatest value you could bring to others. Think of who your ideal buyer would be for that value and then figure out how to create the vehicle that gets it there. Amazing, amazing. What rules in your life have you loved to break, Alan? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't forget my original brand was the contrarian. And so, you know, I just don't use other people's metrics. You know, I, I don't buy into other people's metrics. I, I establish my own. I, I think another rule is that, um, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it. We we only grow uh, when some people are honest with us. So if, if I'm asked, if it's, you know, legitimate feedback and I'm asked, I tell people the truth. And in my coaching programs, you know, I call it tough love. But, you know, it's that's what you have to do. You can't fool people. Uh, and then I think that um, the whole aspect of um, uh, pursuing money, I mean, money is fuel. It's a byproduct of success. But what you really have to pursue is uh, your ability to thrive and enjoy life. In other words, there's nothing wrong with happiness as long as you also create it for others. That's amazing. My last question for you today, Alan, before we get you to leave your social media handles and talk a little bit about your book before we sign off, is let's imagine that maybe in a scenario you do get to this, there's a, there's a hundred bookmark and every person in the world is tuned into the same frequency. Unfortunately, you may not have long left, but you can impart a short but impactful message to our audience, well, not to our audience, to everybody in the world, just before your time comes, what would Alan Weiss's message to the world be? As the horizon gets closer, most people slow down. What you have to do is speed up. I like that a lot. <laughs> I like that a lot. Alan, where can our Freedom Pack family connect with you? Uh, AlanWeiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. You'll find my blog there. Uh, and just about everything else you need. There are free videos, audio, text, everything. Uh, you'll also find my uh, list of workshops and offerings and books and, and all that as well. So that's really the best place. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on um, LinkedIn. And I'm on Facebook. Uh, and I also have two YouTube channels. So Alan, amazing to, to connect with you. I certainly hope it's not the last time. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. I enjoyed it immensely and uh, continued success to you.